Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. It's a wonderful day for camping enthusiasts as Dairy Lots, a local campground and RV park, opens its gates for the season. This is the park of choice for out-of-towners and locals looking to get away for the weekend. Whether you're coming to Derry for the hunting out in Jefferson Tract, celebrating Derry Canal Days, or a group that inexplicably books the entire grounds every 27-ish years, we advise you to reserve a space for yourself as soon as possible. Reservations fill the park quickly. You're listening to Derry Public Radio. This is Derry Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. And today we are back with our Patreon selection series with a selection from Lisa Daly, Dr. Sleep. And we are reading through Chapter 5 with CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. Okay, I feel like I should say something (laughs) profound here, but I don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about The Shining. (laughs) So I'm going to do my best to get us through the first 50 pages before we hit chapter one. (laughs) (laughs) Really, when we talked about like through chapter five, I was like, oh, yeah, that's not far in. But man, that beginning chunk goes for a while. Yes, it does. So we're with Wendy and Danny only a few years after the Overlook burned to the ground. And Wendy got a modest settlement from the company that owned the hotel, which got them through her first three years of recovery from her back injury. And they have pretty much stayed south, and we check in on them in March of 1981 because something has happened that prompts Wendy to give Dick a call. (laughs) This opening is so kick-ass. Danny, what she recalls is Danny waking her up and saying, don't use the bathroom, and then going back to bed. But what we find out from Danny's perspective is that he went into the bathroom and before before he even opened the door, he knew what was going to be there. He opens it and Mrs. Massey from room 217 is in the bathtub. She found him. A nostalgia trip. I right? did not want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right off the bat, this made me go, did Danny ever learn Miss Massey's name? Did he ever learn who Miss Massey is? I think so. Yeah, I think he picked up on, didn't he pick up on Jack's thoughts about a bunch of different people in the hotel and wasn't she one of them? Because he kind of okay. was picking up mm-hmm. things about the the mob shooting in one of the rooms, too, from Jack. I think. Right. Okay, because th- this immediately sort of, I was like, why of all the ghosts? Obviously, Miss Massey, the woman in room uh, 217, is the iconic Mm -hmm. ghost but as a story of the continuing story of danny torrance why is miss massey the first ghost we as readers told about why is miss massey thematically the ghost that is haunting danny I think because of the alone time that he was forced to spend with her. <laughs> okay. Because we, we, I see what you're saying because we don't, I feel like we don't get as much of that in The Shining from Danny's perspective. Mm-hmm. We get like bits and pieces and he kind of like 
goes away. So I think it's just to illustrate how traumatizing she in particular was to him. Okay. Well, and she was the first one that he saw, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, maybe that makes sense a little bit that there's a stronger connection there. It, It just right off the bat, as cool as this opening is, because like the idea of, uh, of course, Danny, as strong as his shine is, he's going to, and after this hugely traumatic event, he's haunted. He's mm-hmm. he's going to be bringing out ghosts everywhere he goes. But the fact that, and maybe it's too much, maybe we will get there, mm-hmm. but him being haunted by Miss Massey versus him being haunted by the ghost of Jack Torrance. Like, I... I See, I think they don't do that, though, because, in, in, and I have it in my notes somewhere, but in a little bit, Wendy and Dick mention that they knew it wasn't Jack. It, mm-hmm. They knew it wasn't Jack. It was the Overlook. So I think it's too, too much of like a, was it Jack? Was it the mm-hmm. hotel kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It was just something I thought of a lot through yeah. the, this, uh, mostly through this prologue, because this prologue has a lot of, oh, this is a book about trauma. This is the book about the ongoing effects of the trauma of the, the abuse that Jack, you know, performed yeah. on his family because this section coming up with Dick kind of plays into that mm. theme, familial trauma. And I was like, okay, so why isn't he be ha- uh, being haunted by Jack? Maybe it'll go into it and that, that we still have a lot of book to go. Because, but, sorry, I'm sick, so I couldn't finish my thought, but I just <laughs> realized what the point I was trying to make is. Okay. I think it's because, because this makes more sense when we get to Dick's part. It's because Danny loves Jack. Mm. Dick did not. There's no love Mm. for his grandfather. So I think maybe it's making the distinction that this haunting, that they're experiencing any of these hauntings are not people who are close to their hearts. Sure. And I think there's still a lot of play of Jack being more of a victim and good guy with quotes around it. Okay. I And this might not even be some of the, the, complaints i have about this book i have no idea whether they're fair or not <laughs> I, I, oh i'm the only one who's read yes, this. yes i was just gonna <laughs> say like josh you're the only Suckers. one who's read this ben i will make note here when i finally came around because i struggled really yes i was the exact opposite Oh, I saw <laughs> Throughout, up until the end of the prologue especially the end of the prologue i was like oh fuck this book is going to be amazing. And then it kind of lost me a little bit. Well, that's, bit. yes, it lost me too, but then it got me a couple chapters. <laughs> I can't wait to find out. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, let's okay. go. Let's, yeah. Sorry, we are so, uh, uh, this, this is how it's going to go. Just, it has to, it has to. It is the one, just by this book's existence, yeah. I have to say, it is maybe not a flaw, but it is a misstep, I think, <laughs> in writing this book just by being a sequel to The Shining, puts so much baggage on yeah. the book that I, I'm trying to be fair. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, yeah, we'll get to it. I'm going to keep a, as much of a poker face as I can. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I don't envy you that task. 
So just a couple of things I wanted to mention about the scene with Miss Massey. The description of her is, I feel like, as disgusting as it ever is. Agreed. Maybe a little more because she leaves so much more of herself <laughs> behind. Oh, that's so gross. The ring around the oh, tub. Oh, my God. Oh. So Danny backs out of the bathroom, closes a door, watches her twist the handle, and he pees in the sink, which I was like, yeah, yeah. what else do you do? <laughs> and then, as you said, tells his mom not to go in the bathroom. He then goes silent like he did before. And he tried to. he's trying to tell himself that he was dreaming, but he knows better. And later when Wendy goes in there, she sees the pieces as well. Ugh, I have the word sloughed off in my head. Oh, it's a terrible word. <laughs> yeah. And then we get this moment with Wendy in the bathroom when she's very reasonably scared by what turns out to be her own shadow. <laughs> and I just wanted to bring that up because I love the line right here. After all the things she'd seen and been through, she knew that shadows could be dangerous. They could have teeth. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> did I take your no, quote? You did okay, not. good. So Wendy calls Dick at 4 a.m. And the next day he is there with a present for Danny. They greet each other and it's sweet and Okay, fuck. So we're not talking about The Shining, <laughs> even though we just did a second ago. But this is the part, because it's a conversation I feel like we had while covering that book, where she's noticing Dick's new dentures. And she thinks about the mallet that swung into his mm, face yeah. that broke his old ones, the mallet that swung into her back that made it so that she couldn't walk without a hitch. But again, they both knew that it wasn't Jack. It was the Overlook. I would still argue, yeah, but also I think Jack mm -hmm. has a little more responsibility than these two allow. But let's talk about Dick's outing with Danny because we get a lot of Dick's history here. That, and not the sexy kind, Ben. No, not, the opposite. Yes, it's awful. Which one of you would like to describe, you know, tell the story that Dick tells Danny? Yeah, Dick sits down with Danny and starts telling the story of his grandpa. First of all, I'm listening to the audiobook. It's Will Patton. We've listened to yeah, so badass. He's, he's good, but God, I wish he wouldn't do the voice. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> not great. But he starts telling the story of his white grandma and his black grandpa. Uh, not that they are actually white and black, but good and evil. Uh, and his grandfather was a monster. Yeah. A pedophile and a sadist. And, uh, Sorry, uh, I was trying to trying to decide how big of a deal to make out of the uh, Nosferatu crossing. Oh my oh, god, Charlie Manx. Yeah, yeah. The, he he drops. He basically he abuses Dick as a small child and tells him never tell anyone or else Charlie Manx will come and take you away to Christmas Land. Which I tried my best to just be like, it's just a, it's, I think it is just a, uh, an Easter egg. It's, I do not believe it is supposed to be imply that The Shining and Nosferatu take place in a crossover universe. So I, I looked it up because I've read Nosferatu, which was published in April of 2013 and Dr. Sleep came out in September of the same year. Yeah. I, it's just funny. Yeah, it, it's just a neat little Easter egg. Yeah. If you've read Nosferatu, yeah. I, if you haven't, I recommend it. It's pretty mm -hmm. good. But he he's this awful person, and for years he he doesn't even tell his his good grandma who 
we've talked about yeah. uh, in the first book. She's the grandma with the shine. Mm-hmm. And he was able to keep this information locked away from her because he never, never wanted to deal with it. And one day, years later, grandpa dies. Thank God. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> yeah, everyone's psyched about it. But he doesn't stay gone. <sighs> the... I love that he went to the funeral so that he could look down and see yes. that he was dead and gone. And one day Dick comes home and Grandpa is on his bed with his Johnson out. And Dick backs out and that's when he goes to his grandma and finally tells her what she knew something was going on. But she told him she wouldn't pry. She'd just be there to listen. So she goes. he goes to her for help and she teaches him about this technique that he is about to pass on to Danny, which I think is so fucking cool, <laughs> Dick hands him a lockbox. Can we mention real quick the the grandpa thing? He comes home to him laying on his bed yeah. in a suit. And for some reason, the description of him in the suit with his dong out and then getting up after Dick shut the door mm-hmm. and he can hear him thumping his way towards the door and scratching on it. It just like... It, for imagery, it made me yeah. think of The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm, it was so cool. But yeah, let's talk about the lockbox, because that is a very interesting technique. <laughs> it's He gives him this lockbox, and he tells Danny to memorize every piece of this box, how it smells, how it looks, the weight of it, all of everything he can sense about it, and then to create a duplicate of it in his mind. And... Using that, he can safely lock away the things that come to feed off of his shine. I like, too, that Dick mentions twice here that he was Danny's teacher, and he hints that when the time comes, Danny will teach someone, which meant nothing to me at the time until I went through my second read of it and I was like oh so I'm very excited for how this is all going to come together later. I, I love that it's not just you know you'll teach someone to but it's when the time is right the student will present themselves yeah. the way you presented yourself to me. I thought that was a cool teaser for how the relationship will come to be. Probably. Yeah. Question for you guys. I don't know if I'm trying to make too many connections here. But Dick asks Danny if he sees ghosts. And I love that they're both like, well, not like ghosts, <laughs> but like ghosts. <laughs> and I, I didn't know if this was referencing something. Danny says he once saw three ghosts, two boys and a girl standing by railroad tracks where he thinks that they were probably killed. And the only stories that I could think of with tracks, and I'm sure there are more, were the body and sometimes they come back. Am I forget? Like, are these ghosts so. we know? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I- <laughs> Do we recognize these ghosts? Well, we got a Charlie Manx reference. So I'm just like, and <laughs> what else? Oh, when Dick gives Danny his present, he confirms what we learned in The Shining. I don't remember if it was like an explicit thing that was stated or not, or if we just talked about it. But the ghosts that Danny's dealing with are real because The Shining is making them real. Of course, they feed on it. And that is definitely about to change in the most badass <laughs> yeah very like i can picture this scene so perfectly it's so cool danny a few uh weeks later danny gets up to go to the bathroom and sees the door is shut so he knows exactly what's gonna happen and it just describes him as opening the door seeing her in the bathtub he walks in and she smiles and then he gently closes it behind him and she smiles until she realizes it's too late and starts screaming 
It's I love this moment that uh, while he's talking with Dick, he he stops and asks, "Does this hurt them?" And Dick <laughs> looks him in the eyes and goes, "Do, Do you, you care? care?" Fucking <laughs> awesome! It does worry me that he can still hear her screaming inside his head. And it, it's not something that bothers him, and it's something he's like, that's going to fade away, but it scares me about what's going to happen later with that. It is that this segment, like I said, the, the whole prologue does such a good job playing into what I thought the book was going to be about, mm-hmm. which the, it might come around. But this idea of how we react, how we recover from kind of generational abuse trauma. Mm -hmm. How incredibly on the nose it is that Danny is taught the way to handle his trauma is by locking it deep Mm -hmm. down inside his brain (laughs) and not thinking about it. How does that affect him? Not good. Shit is Uh, dark. Yeah, he says, when he hears the screaming, he says, oh, it'll fade. No, I don't believe it will. I think you'll stop hearing it, but Mm. I don't think it'll fade. Also, what happens to these ghosts, to these boxes, when these guys die? Do they get released? Do they move on? Finally, since there's no readily available food? I'm not going to look at Josh because I feel like You die because you're trapped inside them when they die. (laughs) <laughs> Jeez. Okay, so, oh, you guys, it's Horace Derwent. How could we forget about this fabulous bastard? Great party. He he appears on the steps of Danny's school two years later. We jump ahead two years. And so Danny calls Dick and he's like, hey, how many boxes can I have? And he's like, as many as you need. You think my grandpa is the only one I have? It's just so fucked up. And what I hated was later that night, he sees Horace and then he just turns and walks away. But later that night, Horace comes back in his closet and Danny goes into his closet yeah. with him. <laughs> so the the way that it feels to lock up a ghost in that box must be very powerful for him to have the confidence to go into a closet sure. with a ghost. Because that's much smaller than a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just found a fear I didn't know I had. We leave childhood Danny with this warning. The ghosts are never getting out. He's safe. That's what he thought. He also thought he'd never take a drink. Sometimes we just get it wrong. God damn. Now we're going to meet a new character, Andrea Steiner. Fucking love Snake Bite <laughs> Andy. Yes, but before we get to adult Andy, we got to talk about mm. childhood yeah. Andy. Again, mm-hmm. playing into... Oh, this whole book, we have a new character, but she has this same Mm -hmm. traumatic childhood experience. She has the shine, obviously. Interesting. (laughs) Cool. She is not our main villain. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and she's not even someone that we're supposed to like, which I Mm. did initially. Oh, how do you not root for her when she cuts the V into his face? Right. I... I stop rooting for her with Bradley Trevor. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but we'll get to him. So Andy is someone who, Ben, as you said, she had a lot of childhood trauma at eight years old. Her father starts raping her, and he continues that for another eight years until she takes care of it in a fantastic way. Yeah. She uses a needle, knitting needle, to pop both of his testicles, 
And then even though he was she put him to sleep, he woke up from the pain and then she jabbed it into his eye and killed him. And you don't know she put him to sleep yet. Oh, it's, yeah. it's like a, a subtle. Yeah. When they did, they definitely yeah. were like, yeah, she popped both of his balls. And I was like, he was sleeping through yeah. that. She said she what? uses her, her talent. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, I thought she oh, was no. just going real fast. she's just really talented at using a knitting needle (laughs) then we pick back up with her she's 32 it's another eight years and she's in a bar picking a guy up and let's talk about what her talent is that we discover she's going into a bar that is known for prostitution and finds a guy and basically says, you want to take me on a date, which is code for do you want to have sex, essentially. But she says, take me to the movies first. So they go to the movies. They're seeing uh, Last Crusade, right? Or yeah. Raiders yeah. of yeah. the Lost, Lost Ark. And she talks about the safeguards to keep him from trying anything too randy. Like she's got the bucket of popcorn down on her lap and stuff. And then she leans over and she uh, asks him if he's getting sleepy. And he passes out and then she robs him pulls out a knife and slices a v into his cheek that is so deep that he will need surgery or he'll need at least stitches and he'll have a scar for the rest of his life and as she's going Mm -hmm. through his photos and his wallet she sees him then him and his wife and him and his kids and she uh treats him as he deserves (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she's she's an Eileen Wernos. Yeah. I was thinking of that too. Yeah. Yeah. She's not the only one in the theater though. Cuz she's about to get up when the three people who were observing her intervene. I think we first and foremost need to have a conversation about <laughs> the names. Uh I hate them. Uh I hate I, them. I, so I also did it first and then I thought of something that made it palatable. <laughs> Because they, they, when they introduce all these characters, they introduce them by their rube names, and then which is you know whatever their legal name mm-hmm. was. Uh, like Rose is Rose O'Hara, but her real name is Rose the Hat because for top hat. Because she wears a goddamn hat. She wears a top hat. CM so fucking- <laughs> is that? I hope that's not offensive. To- and then there's the this is the the one which is Barry Smith, who, even though he is a Caucasian man, they call him Barry yeah, the Chink. I, in my notes, I have Barry racial slur. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, of course, <laughs> racist term in the book, not good. But the thing that made it palatable was as long as these people have been together, when he got that name was still at a time when that would have been an acceptable name to call uh, someone. All of these, like, dumb nicknames, kind of, for me, I I still hate them, mm. all of them, not just the ones that are racial slurs. They're all just There's really several. lame. They're kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, they're just annoying and dumb. <laughs> but once we get to chapter five and we kind of get that the true not are bunch of lame as shit boomers <laughs> like it kind of made more sense mm-hmm. the of course they don't have fucking cool nicknames they got that's another generational theme here is these people this whole group are essentially s- constantly several generations behind 
wherever they are. I fucking hate them. <laughs> I hate every last one of them. Okay, the, so we might as well talk about this here. This is where I was on my first read through really struggling because this story, it was losing me here and I was trying to figure out why. And I think it's really hard to read something that is basically perfect, like The Shining, and then mm-hmm. read a sequel to that, Ben, as you pointed out. And I feel like, so, so far, at least it seems like this is what's happening. King is doing the right thing as far as sequels go. You can't recapture that same magic. You need to do something different. The Shining was such a painfully intimate story. Three people isolated in this haunted hotel. And Dr. Sleep is about to get really, really big. And I I had to kind of get through that. And then the first part of this, too, is really mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we come back and things are slightly less hopeless and then the story is picking up momentum and that's where it got me back on its side but up uh, until you know during this part it's just like oh, i don't know i don't know i'd see that's interesting because up till this part and the next part of the prologue i was thinking yes this is different from the shining but it still it feels like we're kind of having not the same conversation, but the conversations are linked. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it, and then once we get to the story proper, like you said, it gets a lot less bleak, mm-hmm. which is great for Danny, but also makes the book feel less. Like it takes place, like it needs to be linked to The Shining because The Shining, it's so dark. You say the first part is mean. The Shining was a mean book. Like some terrible stuff happened. They, I, I I don't know. It Mm. there's the stuff with the the true knot, and later on the stuff with Abra. I I agree. It's the Mm. scope. I haven't caught up with it yet. It's too big. It's too. I, I I don't care about, <laughs> about the, it, it's not you gotta yeah. find yeah I, I you gotta don't, find the character you connect with and it's you can't connect with Danny right now yeah and and I don't know it's the shining is so intimately the story of these three people and a little bit about a haunted hotel <laughs> like <laughs> but it's mostly about these three people what they're going through what they're thinking. And this seems to get to the point where it is about a guy with superpowers dealing with a ghost cult. It gives me the vibes of books where the shop is a thing and it's just like this bigger world and more people. Yeah, which isn't a terrible thing. No, no, not at all. And it's just, I'm I'm kind of struggling (laughs) getting on its level. I want this to be uh, what the next chapter is an intimate portrait mm-hmm. of Danny Ooh. and how his life yeah. is kind of falling yeah. apart. This beginning part, it reminds me of, uh, it's like the shining and the stand where it, it, you have that one where it's close and intimate. And then the stand is so much mm-hmm. larger mm-hmm. where so far right now, this is in kind of a structure like the stand where it's yeah vignettes almost that are unconnected and untethered mm. to a time and place right now. And we feel that have way. to let it, yeah. you have to wait for it to come together and okay. hope that everything comes together. Before we get intimate, let's get super intimate <laughs> oh. with 
Andy because she's about to leave with her prize and having done her good deed for the day as she sees it. And all of a sudden, Rose and her true not family, the other two, are behind Andy. She puts her hands in Andy's head and she is not conscious again until she finds herself in Rose's earth cruiser on a campground on the outskirts of the city. And this is where we get the explanation of what the true not are. Just a few quick points so we can get on to other parts. They haven't welcomed someone into their family in over 20 years. They are going to try to bring Andy in. And it's interesting. She asks, like, well, if I don't want to join you guys, are you going to kill me? And Rose says, no, we're not going to kill you. Because I think because she sees her as one of them, she says that they just take her power, basically leaving her as a rube, and take her memory of the last few days and then just leave her in some town penniless. And we find out here, we'll find out more about what it means later, that they eat something called steam and it keeps them young. And that supply isn't always great. And that's something she also keeps from Andy. Would one of you like to describe Andy's turning? <laughs> the ritual fucking rules. <laughs> uh, I, the, the small bit that they one guy references that, you know, back in the day there would have been campfires and stuff around and now it's just rv headlights and stuff but they andy is laying on the ground and they have a everybody in the true knot forms a circle around her and they perform this ritual open a canister of steam and she breathes in the last dying moments of a little boy who just saw his mom shot to death and when she breathes it in, she starts what they call cycling, where she starts to become transparent. Her Even her clothes start to deflate because she's vanishing. At one point, just her eyeballs remain, and one guy's like, yeah, she's she's cycled out. She's going to go and not come back. But Rose gets what Rose wants, and she gives her a little smooch and mm-hmm. spits some steam. And Andy pulls through and is now a member of the True Knot. She's a, a steam vampire. It's interesting because at the end of this section, after she turns, we get this comparison of Dick being Danny's teacher and Rose being Andy's because Andy asks if she was human anymore and Rose gave the same answer Dick gave Danny. Do you care? (laughs) Okay, now we're at the fucking worst thing I've ever read. Break your heart. We get to meet the adult Danny Torrance. He is not doing good. If you okay, I'm so sorry. I know this episode is going to be five hours long, but when you're thinking we're getting a shining sequel, we're going to meet Danny Torrance as an adult. Of all the ways to re meet a character after all this time, this has got to be one that uh, took it was a complete blindside for me how bad it would be. It hurts. I hate it, and it's part of what made me struggle. I mean, it's effective. I yeah, say absolutely. I hate it. He wakes up to the weenie squeezing Deanie. <laughs> when I typed that out, I had this thought that <laughs> I hope no one thinks I like put those words together that way. <laughs> because that's what Stephen King calls her. This and then is a I Stephen realized King podcast. No one thought it was you. No, but then I realized it's probably something I would say. <laughs> so shame on us both. <laughs> yeah. So even though we were just with Danny a few years after the events of The Shining, because he is an adult... I felt like this was our true reunion with him. Mm. Did either of you feel that way? Yes. 
And I was heartbroken the first time I read it. Yeah. So um, who would like to describe this abysmal scene of Danny waking up? Yeah. So uh, first of all, okay, no, I'll just get into it. <laughs> um, so he he wakes up in this like dismal apartment next to this girl who he immediately is like, uh-oh, Hope she's Might be old a jail enough. Uh oh, and we're like, uh oh, Danny, <laughs> no. And he can't remember the previous night. He remembers being in some shithole bar and picking up this girl. And he's like, I must have, you know, come home with her. And he's looking around, and there's cocaine on the table, and it's slowly starting to come back to him. Right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I uh, can yeah. Not to like prolong this awfulness, but when he first gets up, like he's so hungover and sick that he he goes into the bathroom and he's <laughs> all bloodied up and he turd vomits in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> turd vomits yes. is an interesting. And has some really uncharitable thoughts about the woman kind enough to touch his dick the night before. When he's he, promising himself for the thousandth time, this is the last time mm-hmm. I drink this much, and it, wanting the memories to not come back of the night prior. Ugh. Oh, sorry. I just was going to cut to the real chase yeah. of when he comes out of the bathroom and there's a kid. Uh, uh, small, uh, a toddler. small toddler. 18 months, Tommy. one month younger than my daughter. Oh, no. And so, like, that's the sigh. Like, that, that this moment got too real in my head because it was too easy to imagine. And, and this kid, Tommy, right, mm-hmm. is calling mama, mama. And the entire time, Danny's just like, I got to fucking get out of here. This is this is all just bad. I This is a bad situation. I shouldn't be here. But he looks at the kid and sees bruises on his upper arm Mm -hmm. and we as readers are like oh no that's the the connection to the him having his arm broken he at Mm -hmm. some point grabs the kid by the arm where the bruises are and you're like so aware of the parallels between him and jack uh whereas jack was in this drunk state and became violent. He is not violent towards the kid. He's saving him from something. But he is also actively doing harm. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, he stops the kid. The kid is reaching towards the cocaine and saying candy in a really upsetting way. Yeah. Um, and he he saves a kid and he picks up the coke and like makes sure the kid can't get it. But he also takes this girl's last bit of money and leaves leaves some food stamps and tries to convince himself that that makes him a decent person. The argument of I left the cocaine since she wanted it anyway and she can resell it. Shit, she can sell the TV if she needs groceries. Just all these excuses. Wild. I will also point out the when he touches Tommy's arm, he gets a vision of uh, he gets a shine of Deanie's brother being the Mm -hmm. person who harmed him. And he says, if I 
want to, I can focus. I could find where this guy is and leave some bruises of my own, which makes you wonder how many times that's happened. Yep. Yeah. The other thing that's important here is that he part of his excuse for justifying taking her money is that he had had $500 in his pocket. It was like all the money he had when he went to the bar and she wanted cocaine and he bought her some and ended up blowing most of his money because he saw the death flies. We're not going to talk about those for quite some time, but we'll get back to them. Yes. We also find out that it's time for Danny to move on, something he's done quite a bit of in his adult life so far. But not before he gets some booze and steals a homeless dude's blanket, Mm -hmm. and he spends that night curled up in the mouth of a large storm drain. For me, Uh, this was baffling because it it reminded me of the last time we were with Danny in a structure like that. And it wasn't mm -hmm. a storm drain, but the imagery of Danny Torrance, young Danny, and the mouth of something in the snow playing just made me, it just like sent me back to like, oh no, danger. I have to say the end of this chapter fucked me up and it it, it turns out it's because I read it wrong. <laughs> uh, well, it's just I I thought the book was doing something that it turns out it wasn't doing. Um and I liked what I thought it was doing. <laughs> like okay, so he runs out, he steals a blanket from a homeless guy and he's falling asleep under a bridge. And there is a moment where he says, suddenly, Tommy was with me. Suddenly, you, okay, the, <laughs> this little kid, it was it's so real that he is right here with me. And all I could think, uh, I, I kept seeing his eyes, mama, his hand reaching for the cocaine, his eyes, his hand. And he thinks... I will never speak of this again. And in my head, I went, holy fuck. This, that's astounding writing because they don't go out and say it. But in my head, that boy either was always a ghost. Mm. That when he (laughs) was there, that was the ghost of that girl's child who had already OD'd on cocaine. (laughs) That would have been been cool. Or that when he had left, he had somehow left some out and he had gotten, and now the child had died and he was haunting him. (laughs) And I was like, whole, that's fucking amazing that they don't, King doesn't go out and say that that's what happened. It's just an amazing bit of writing to make us go, oh, he's going to be constantly haunted by, you know, ghosts everywhere. But also this particular ghost is so personal to him. Yeah. And, like, it's really cool. And then in the next chapter, he's like, it's a few years later, and he's like, oh, that kid's probably in school if he hasn't gotten killed by that guy yet. I'm like, oh, oh. Okay. The, oh, I thought you did a really cool thing, Stephen King. Come on. The only reason I'm not super mad that isn't how it actually was is because of how important these this situation becomes to mm-hmm. Danny's program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So after this evening he spends in the mouth of the storm drain, he moves on upstate. A few years pass, as you said, Ben, and he continues to drink. And this is where we finally enter chapter one and the first part of this is a lot more of danny moving place to place we don't have to Mm. go through all that working basically until he's 
he gets fired or he's about to get fired because, you know, he's been binge shrinking and missed too much work and continuing to be haunted by what he did to Dini and what he saw on Tommy. He is so haunted that at some point he's like, if I had her address, I would send her $70 just to make it so that I never had to think of them again. And the really cool part about this is that at one point he goes a month without drinking and he does it as a kind of penance and it's described as scourging himself with whips, Mm. dry ones. And I was like, oh, what a tasty bit of writing there. (laughs) He eventually gets on a bus to New Hampshire with a bottle of booze. And I don't know if this is anything, but he thinks of how he can stop drinking if he wants to. He can change all this. An internal dialogue that he often has But then a new one pops up in his head. You don't have to live this way if you don't want to. You can, of course, but you don't have to, which is a different, like it's not a familiar voice. And it's so unfamiliar that he's like, oh, I must be picking up someone's thoughts. And he looks down the aisle of the bus to see if anyone is looking back at him and no one is. And it's enough, though, that he puts the cap back on the bottle. And much, much later, we find out that he, or at least where we end this episode, hasn't taken a drink since. So do you guys think this was a message from someone else or a new voice? in it? Like, what did you make of that, if anything? Josh, if you can say. It's, oh, hold on. How do I phrase? It's hard because of that jump. We don't know really what he's been going through. But in Mm -hmm. my head, I tied it to the fact that when he was taking the money, initially his mom's voice came back and then Dick's voice also came back. And I'm wondering if I just kind of lumped it in with it being one of those voices that he hasn't heard in a while mm. and it's not so clear that it's oh, it's my mom's voice but it's kind of that mm-hmm. that inner voice i don't know if it i think it happened in the prologue but the first time adult danny thinks of wendy he thinks fuck you mom yeah, yeah. was that like getting slapped in the face yeah, to yeah. Hear you? Hurt. yeah, yeah. that was in the prologue mm-hmm. Okay, so Danny arrives in Fraser, home of Teeny Town, and when the bus stops, he hears Tony's voice more clearly than he has oh, in so years. Great. This got me. What does he tell Danny? This is the place. Yep. Get off the bus. When he he's walking past this like boarding house, basically, and he looks up, and there's this like turret uh, in this old house. And he looks up and sees Tony in the window waving down at him <laughs> like he used to across. Oh, goosebumps. Yep. Loved that. And then when he looks back, the window's mm-hmm. boarded up. And so Tony never could have been there. Yeah. But he knows those, Tony. It's occurring to me um, 45 minutes into this very long episode. If anyone is diving into this without reading The Shining, don't do that. How did you make make it 45 minutes in before? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but just because like Tony, for example, there are going to be things that we're going to Mm. talk about that we're not going to explain because we know it from The Shining. So if you're in that camp, at the very least, listen to our Shining episodes. (laughs) So Danny's in this town and I want to talk about the first person he meets in this sort of like teeny town area which one of you like to describe what that is because it's going to come up a lot <laughs> so teeny town catches danny's attention it's what the town is kind of locally famous for it's a train that has a miniature version of the city that is around it kind of like how in the shining there was the miniature yeah, version. Weird. Uh-huh. anyway yeah this tiny town and he's checking out the uh engine and uh he's walked upon by Billy Freeman, who is the groundskeeper for it. 
And oh, I really like Billy Freeman. Did he remind you guys of the guy who helped Dick get? Yes. Yeah. With, like gave him the gloves Howard and Cottrell. stuff. Yeah. Just a very kind, like seemingly random, but probably very important stranger whose kindness changes things in a very big way, like a very mm. important part of the story, even though he's a minor character or seems to be. He also got a bit of the shine. Yeah. It's, it's just funny that like he talks to Billy about looking for work and Billy says, gives him the directions to the boss's office, warns him that it'll be seasonal, warns him about not drinking, uh, all, all of these details he'll need to get the job. But it's just funny at this point to reflect on that he has picked up his father's drinking. He has picked up his mother's smoking. And now he has picked up a seasonal caretaker position in the mountains. <laughs> Is it now? Because when he goes and meets the guy in charge that he thinks, what an officious little prick. Yes! Yeah, when he meets Casey Kingsley, which just real quick before we get to Casey... Dick's voice is coming up a lot more in this moment, warning him to wait to apply at a local hospice that he notices until he's put more time between himself and a drink, warning him he's almost 30 and he may be running out of chances soon, and warning him that he's got to stay somewhere. So, as you guys said, Billy coaches him a bit about meeting the boss, Casey Kingsley, and we get this very familiar scene with Danny sitting across from someone who is basically like recognizes we don't need you so much. You need us. Mm. Something that Billy even tells Kingsley later about Danny. And Kingsley always takes Billy's recommendations because he doesn't have a word for it, The Shining. But he has just noticed that Billy is right about a lot of strange things. That night, a snowstorm comes and Danny is reminded of another snowstorm in an area with much bigger mountains. <laughs> Despite being haunted by memories of the Overlook, he does manage to fall asleep. But unfortunately, in his sleep, he is back at the storm drain the night of his Deanie Weenie experience. And this is where I started to get hooked, Ben. Like, this is where yeah. I came around. Yes, this dream sequence, mm -hmm. which is funny because, you know. It, it is a really <laughs> good dream sequence. He dreams that he is back in the mouth of the storm drain. And he's sitting there and behind him, he hears a voice. And it's Deanie, and she's dead, and he knows that she has been dead for some time now. That's what it was. And yeah. she has a warning for him because she liked him. And she warns him to stay away from the woman in the hat and mm. yeah, has, has another <laughs> message. For, yeah. Refers to her as the queen bitch of Castle Hell <laughs> for whatever reason. Sure. But I do like it also touches on that she's like, oh, by all, the way, I also sold that cocaine and I made more than the money you took. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he wakes up from this nightmare into another nightmare that isn't actually a dream, but The Shining, and that's where he knows what happened to Dini. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, she took her life. Uh, she took pills and basically died in a tub. And he's not alone. He has a visitor in his new bed. Tommy is laying there with half his skull caved in, and he knows that it was the, his uncle that did it to him. Ugh. And it was soon after that that. Danny killed herself. Mm -hmm. Danny briefly thinks about a psychiatrist that he knew, a patient at the hospice he worked at seven years ago who he made friends with, and he'd asked him what he knows about double dreaming, and in exchange, he agrees to help this guy die when the time comes, and we don't know what's meant by that yet, uh, but by the end of this episode, we are going to find out. And he asks about double dreaming because of the visions, but this guy explains that you only think you're awake in the second dream, but of course you're not. There are no precognitive powers. And he'll think about <laughs> him a few times. But man, Danny needs a drink after 
after this horrible dream. And even though he's trying to fight it in the end, he finds himself walking the booze aisle. But luckily for him, he's disheveled and he's acting like such a weirdo that he freaks out the clerk. And then he's like, uh, I forgot my wallet. And he leaves. <laughs> and it is just enough to get him through the next day, the work day. Things are kind of looking up. He has a pleasant dinner with Billy, turns down a drink and admits if I start, sometimes I don't always stop. And Billy suggests that he talk to Kingsley about that because he got a booze divorce 15 years ago, but his drinking destroyed his relationship with his daughter, which Danny had shined something about that when he first met Kingsley. Not the angle I was expecting for the our, uh, Ulrich mm. stand-in to end up being a mentor kind of character. Yeah, yeah, me neither, because I, I didn't think I was going to like this guy. Yeah. I love I love Kingsley. Everything is great until later on that night when he wakes up in the early morning hours to pee, which apparently he should never do. In the <laughs> night. And he sees something disturbing. Yeah, the hat is back and it's full of blood and red rum appears on the mirror written in blood. And Tommy's blood-stained shirt is yeah. in the sink. When morning comes, Danny buys his booze and he makes his way to Teeny Town. But luckily for him, Billy woke up with a feeling that he... Something was going on. And he tells Danny to see Kingsley. It's for me, this part is when his mom's voice comes into his head and asks, is this what it was all for? Mm -hmm. Did we go through all of that just so you could do this with your life? That got me real that bad. Kingsley's not surprised to see Danny. Alcoholics recognize their own. And when Billy sent him over for the job, you know, he had given Kingsley that message about him. So he's willing to trust Billy's intuition about Danny as well. So Danny says, I need help. And Kingsley takes the bottle from him and he asks him if he's sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they go inside his office to talk. And we are going to leave Danny for a little bit because now we're going to meet yet another character, <laughs> a very interesting baby, her mom, dad and Momo. I, I, I'm sorry. The magical baby named Abra. <laughs> <laughs> I do hate I the hate name Abra. I, know. I, I absolutely yeah. hate that name. So we have Lucy and David Stone. They're showing Great Lucy's. <laughs> they're showing Lucy's grandmother, Chetta, Abra's birth video. She came down to vis visit her newborn great granddaughter. And we see very quickly that the dynamics of this family aren't exactly perfect. But you can tell that. They seem like a good set of people. Mm -hmm. Chetta is an Italian immigrant and professor and a very strong-willed, I'm going to say rad old lady. I love her. Yeah. And Lucy and David are Abra's parents. And Abra, just like Danny Torrance, was born with a call, mm -hmm. which Chetta explains is good luck if you keep it. <laughs> yeah. Which they didn't. But she's like, well, babies born with a call have double sight. Meanwhile, we jump 20 miles away and Danny is at an AA meeting. This is really cool. Like, so Kingsley became a sponsor and he told him he ordered him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 90 meetings in 90 days, which is standard AA protocol. And he gives him a book to write down each meeting and to show him, like, Danny has to show Kingsley anytime he asks so that he can hold himself accountable. And he's like, and you better have perfect attendance. And I like when Danny asks if he gets I a can sick forget. day yeah. or he forgets <laughs> Kingsley. Kingsley's response is like, alcoholics are sick every day and you're going to have to find a sponsor who believes in forgetfulness. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Kingsley rules. Yeah. And th this is where I realized because I thought it was going to be Billy who was that tight connection. And mm. it he does have a good connection with him. But it's, yeah, Kingsley. I like that Danny is being surrounded by a support system. 
like in this yes, strange yes. place. Things feel safer. Mm-hmm. Danny is writing in his book at this AA meeting, and for no reason at all, he writes the word Abra. And in his mind, he hears Chetta asking if they saved it, referring to the call. Okay, so we're going to quickly check in with the True Knot, who are beginning their journey back east, with the comment that they weren't in a hurry because the feast was still months away. I feel I, so stupid. I couldn't keep track of time very well. I wasn't even thinking okay, about so years. Okay, so it wasn't just no, me. It wasn't no, you at all. because the reveal is one of the most insane things <laughs> I've ever read. Really? I, I, when we get the reveal, I had, I, I was like, Jesus Christ, King, <laughs> this is in such poor taste. I, well, and I wondered, because I had that same initial reaction, but then I thought about all the books we've read where he is pulled from, like, yeah. the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and other very no, important historical it events. Makes sense, I guess. It's just but too close to, just, to us, I It's think. too close to us, and to have your villains be like, oh, we're, this is how you know they're real bad people. <laughs> Because well, of how much they enjoyed that this happened. Well, the, I, I don't remember if it's here or later that they were re, that they refer to this as a, a seventh wave, yeah. which is uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, and what I I can't think of another large scale mass tragedy like that we've had since. So it kind of makes sense mm-hmm. that that's the defining block. Well, let's stop talking around it. That's, yeah. we we are five months away, and. Lucy and David both wake up from a very upsetting nightmare that they're having. Would one of you like to talk about what their dream is? They both have dreams independent of one another of Abra crying and not being able to find her. Lucy is on a plane and when she finds Abra, she sees the number 11 on her and uh, Dave finds her in a mall and she has 175 written on her. They wake up. She's inconsolable. They can't get her to sleep. They can't get her to stop crying at all. Uh, they call Chetta. She says, take him, take her to the hospital. They go to the hospital. We're talking hours. hours and hours of just this baby screaming no matter what they try. I thought about you while I was reading this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I've, I've had some of those nights. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with her. Anybody can see they've taken x-rays. They've done all this. She's just not going to stop crying. And uh, Dr. John Dalton, who is somebody that uh, mentions Dan would recognize. I I love that. I thought that was awesome. That's a really cool way of like connecting these two characters uh, is that this doctor goes to AA meetings. Yeah. Or uh, pediatrician. Yeah. And all at once at 9.04 a.m., Abra stops crying. And it is prior to her stopping crying, uh, John, Dr. John tells them that uh, about the planes flying into the World Trade Center mm-hmm. and those flight in- numbers being 11 and 175, the numbers that they saw in their dreams. Insane. <laughs> Insane that a major turning point is a baby that predicts 9-11. <laughs> Crazy. Where was she? Hold her accountable. She oh, let the goodness. terrorists right. win. <laughs> okay. Right? That's what Ben's trying I'm, to say, right? I'm gonna, <laughs> we're going to... Ben, can you tell us what's happening in New Jersey with the True Knot? You kind of hinted at it earlier. They, the, the feast that was being, like, that was referenced is they have some 
minor precognitive abilities, and they had sensed that some major tragedy was on the horizon. And so they gathered in uh, uh, an RV park, Mm -hmm. basically, outside of the outskirts of the city, and are stood facing towards New York. Pretending to cry. (laughs) Breathing in the misery and death Mm -hmm. of fucking 9-11. And trying not to look too satisfied about it. Pointing out that several of them can cry on command and they (laughs) use them as shields basically and and this is also where we find out that some of them are way older than they look and they're about to look younger than Mm -hmm. they are yeah the one of the what's his name grandpa grandpa flick yeah sure (laughs) um that he's this old old man but he talks about how he tells people uh, originally, he had to lie and tell people he was a part of the... The Spanish-American the Spanish War. Spanish-American <laughs> War! He had to lie! Because that he had to come up with a more recent war. <laughs> but he's, I love that he's always been a history buff, so staying yeah, anachronistic out. has never been a problem for him. <laughs> Alright, so we are going to jump ahead to January 2004. We are back with Danny, who is three months away from being three years sober. Yes! Yay, Danny. Good job, Danny. Congratulations. He has his driver's license back. He's got a steady job at the Helen Rivington house. The Shining has been quiet, which he did not expect for being sober, except for extra stuff he sometimes does at the hospice, which we still don't quite know what that is. And Danny is on his way to an open discussion meeting, thinking... About a story a woman in group shared a few years ago about a Hold hit and up. run. You mean eerily the story of a reason his dad got sober? Except for e- she found a person? E- yeah! <laughs> it took me my second time through to be like, wait, that's Jack's story. It took me now. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, this lady, this is going to become moderately important a little while later, but she's just saying hey like this is the deep dark secret the baggage here it is honesty in all our affairs yep and tonight though dr john has something to share as well and danny likes this guy so much that he's gonna put himself out there to help him let's talk about how he helps him it's such a cool moment because he just gets up and he says i'm lying to my wife she bought me a watch i lost it and i've been lying to her about it it's not like the watch is super important. It just reminds me of when I used to lie about drinking and he feels guilty about it. And it's just about sharing it because you don't offer answers. You don't no, it's offer not solutions. Therapy. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. You just, everyone listens. And afterwards, Dan thinks that he just, he really likes this guy, wants to help him. And he gives him the bro hug. And in the bro hug, he gets the clear shine of him taking his watch off to wash his hands because he was worried about a patient and after they get done with the embrace, Dan just says, you were you set it up. You were worried about the kid. And Dr. John's like, wait, <laughs> have you been to this place? Do you know this kid? Like, what is happening? And Dan's just like, just just look, just check it out. And maybe. also shut the fuck up about. But this. also, yeah. Yeah. Also, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Anonymity is a big deal to them. So a few months later, Chetta and David come to visit Dr. John and invite him to Abra's third birthday party. But not just because they like this guy. They tell him about the dreams that David and Lucy had the night of the endless crying. But there is a lot more. You don't have to go into great detail, but would one of you just like to kind of list off some creepy things that they've dealt with? Uh, My favorite, 
the Simpsons were playing on every <laughs> yeah. channel. That reminded that me of the Twilight really... Zone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Ben, what was your favorite? Um, okay, so full disclosure, the other night I watched the movie Skinamarink, uh, and oh. it completely uh, obliterated any memory of this because it's so goddamn scary <laughs> that when you just said, what's the scariest thing that happened to this little kid? I, it's all I can oh, think no. of. The The only other one that stood out to me was the piano, uh, the piano, not uh, piano playing yeah. itself, but the sounds coming from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Summoning the summoning music out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And she can find I things. I would fucking hate having that. <laughs> she can find things that are lost and and there are so many additional little things that aren't easily quantified, but when you take all of those things together over these few years, it is a lot. And because there are no answers, Dr. John says, put her in a shed, don't tell anybody about her, <laughs> cover her with a tarp. <laughs> oh, don't reference the beauty in this, Josh. That's yeah. unfair. I, I don't know. The, I like the relationship. This I, I think it's really funny the antagonistic relationship that the grandma and this doctor have. They no, just uh, David Dave. and the grandma. David yeah. and the yeah. grandma. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, it's I like too that Doctor John listens to all of this and he believes that they're telling the truth. Yeah, which is is nice because I remember this reflex a scene in The Shining with mm -hmm. Wendy and Jack talking to a doctor about Danny. And the doctor's just sort of brushing it all off. And we get this just sad moment with Wendy thinking to herself, like, he doesn't believe us. And I know he's wrong. We're going to check back in with Danny, who is going to move into that strange old Victorian building that he saw Tony waving to him from when he first came into town. And he's talking about the hospice chief supervisor, Mrs. Clausen. He's talking to her about this move and this is six months after starting to work at the hospice as a janitor orderly and unofficial doctor with a cat for a sidekick which is a very strange and interesting but kind of charming life just that description it, did, did the cat as a sidekick give it away for you because that's when i got it my first time of like what he's doing no because i'm dumb <laughs> you're not yeah. dumb i that i just i the new the story cat stealing breath no, the it's oh. uh, it was in the news the of uh, cats call, jumping onto the bodies of people who are about to die because for whatever reason that's like oh I missed a, that it it was I know at least of one like major news story that it was you know swept the nation for a period of time but I mm. think I don't know if it's just a wives' tale or not but it was cats just... jump on you because you're warmer than they are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know this. Uh, this premise of Danny the death dealing orderly <laughs> seems like the pilot of a USA show. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, that's that's too sad uh, uh, for a pilot. I think I don't know. He solved crimes or something. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, see, for it to be a show, he'd have to uh, save them at the end, though. Like they couldn't just die. Yeah, it'd be like touched by an angel. Exactly. All right, but boys. a cat's there. Yeah. <laughs> this is our first reference, though, to Dr. Sleep. And uh, just real quick, I love that the the landlady, she's like, 
Why do you want to move? You're currently a lady thinks the, sh- the sun shines out of your ass. I know because I sing with her in choir and she won't shut up about you. And he's like, what's your favorite song? Is it what a fucking friend we have in Jesus? And she's like, yeah, she's like, fine, move in. Get yourself a space heater. Preferably one with a frayed cord yeah. so you burn it to the burn ground. Burn this motherfucker down. Because the, the it's not super important, but the Helen Rivington house is this old, beautiful kind mm-hmm. of gothic house with two brick monstrosities on either side <laughs> because they expanded the hospice yeah. hospital. And so it just looks really out of place. <laughs> so Danny does move in and he does get a space heater, not with a frayed cord. And he also gets a blackboard. And on the morning of Abra's birthday party, Danny wakes up to something written on the blackboard that he did not put there. Hello with a smiley face in the O. Very cute. <laughs> Let's talk about this birthday party, guys. Dr. John is there. The family is cute. The great Mysterio is there. <laughs> the, who I thought was a member of True Not, but is not. <laughs> the... I thought you were going to say a member of no, the he... Sinister Six. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. just about to say, no, he's just a lame Spider-Man villain. And uh, the children are of different races, and they're not hitting each other, which Chetta's really <laughs> astonished. Sh- sh- sure, by. Stephen King. And this magician does a really cool trick with spoons, and Abra's like, "I can do better than that." And much to the chagrin of her family, she does way better she than sure that. Sure does. Like <laughs> it's the the classic. Uh, you're going to want to come see this kind of moment <laughs> because they go oh get Doctor John. And they come inside, and all of the spoons in the kitchen are on the ceiling. Oh my god! Everyone should watch Skinnamarink <laughs> right now. Hey, can we talk about Skinnamarink <laughs> instead no, of we this? Haven't seen okay. it. Oh, well, we're gonna watch, let's it, watch it after, after this. this. Okay, cool. <laughs> and it, this is a touching moment, though, because they're kind of freaked out, but also happy that Doctor John is seeing what they've been talking about, mm. and they say something to Abra, and she thinks she's in trouble, and all the spoons fall at the same time, and they're like, "You were." not in trouble she's just like i'm a better magician than that guy i just wanted to show you it's adorable you like this tiny little kid already or not no yes no it's my uh, hates this kid no it's the abra chapters so far are nothing right correct for for me these chapter i don't care about any of these characters like, sure, Chetta is like, oh, she's a sassy old lady mm-hmm. and uh, great. The family is just a nice family. This <laughs> does not play into any of the stuff that made me so interested in the prologue. Mm-hmm. Any of the stuff in the prologue that made me go, oh, this is what this book is about thematically. Yeah. Every time we go to Abra and her family, it's just like, oh, this book isn't about generational abuse or trauma. It's about a magic little kid. It's, I don't disagree with yeah, you. Yeah, it's yeah. there. I like the characters. Mm-hmm. I I'm interested. I'm definitely excited to see where it goes. Uh, I am worried for her <laughs> uh, based yeah. on some stuff we find out with the the knot. But it's just not as insanely compelling Mm -hmm. as the Torrance's were. It's not as intimate. And again, that's what I kept struggling with. And yeah, that's again, that's why it took me back to the stand of this feels like it is a, a story that has Mm -hmm. a tangential connection to other things right now. But right now that's all it is. It's just the standalone thing. Yeah. 
it's the the stand says so much interesting shit about like the human condition mm-hmm. and this is about a magic kid fighting a ghost it, cult that's, that's, <laughs> it's, it's impossible to not to draw comparisons and i don't think it would be fair for anybody to wish us not to because sure, it's a sure, sequel yeah and i usually love sequels i'm a slut for sequels God, um, i don't it's I, I I'm just gonna keep going. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, well, yeah. no, I mean like <laughs> with my expectations being sort of like oh, I don't know, and I'm also gonna keep going so we can someday stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a few months later, we are with the Stones in Doctor John's office. He had his nephew do some research. There's not really a lot of useful <laughs> information to share, but I just do like that. I like the advice he gives them. Josh, mm. is that a hundred percent? The the advice they give her is treat her as normal because for the most part that's exactly what she is. Well, and have a plan for everything. Oh yeah, have a yeah. Which, if you if you have a plan for something, you won't panic when it happens because you'll have thought about it already. It's advice he gives every new parents mm-hmm. of a child. Yeah. Like have a schedule for feeding, and then have a plan for what you're going to do if someone can't do it. Have a plan for when you sleep. Have a, yeah. For mm. God's sake, <laughs> figure it when you're sleeping. John does have a brief thought here of Danny. So I imagine he might, prediction here, he might be the one to bring Danny and Abra together, maybe. I don't know yet. Josh, not looking at you. Fast (laughs) forward to January of 2007. Danny is living in his room in that old Victorian, dreaming about the Overlook. This This is is what I, yeah. Yeah, Ben, would you like to describe? It is really, yeah, it's it's a recap of, <laughs> of of all of the scary things in The Shining and Danny remembering the fire extinguisher and uh, knowing mm. that it could move at any moment. Did you like that it was buzzing also, like the wasps? Yeah. <laughs> because there is real buzzing. Oh, I felt so dumb here. He is, <laughs> guys, I'm sorry. He's woken up by Claudette buzzing him to come down to the hospice with the words, I think you've got one, Doc. And I was like, oh, oh, everybody used to call him Doc. He's Dr. Sleep. I didn't know he was Dr. Sleep. I thought someone, I thought it was a member of the True Knot. Like very easily could be. Outstanding. I also, we didn't really go into it, but when he he talks to Dr. John, the fact that he calls him Doc, I thought that was really funny to hear Danny call someone else Doc. Charlie Hayes is the patient. He seems very, he seemed very lively the afternoon before, and he has some company, though. Azzy the cat, who visits people as they're about to die. Which is short for... Azrael. Azrael, yes, the angel of Azri Kadabri. Or whatever. <laughs> yep. Everyone there accepts this, that Azzy sort of foreshadows what's about to happen, and I think that's really cool. It completes this picture of Danny, who they also accept as Dr. Sleep, as being home and settled and okay. And after the mama section is what that was called with Deanie at the beginning of this book, I'm just so relieved. Like, I really needed this. I really needed Mm. this moment to see him being at home, like, for the first time ever since we've known Danny. I I actually really like that it... I I like that the book didn't become entirely his struggles. Yes, I was very worried about that. Yeah, it is cool to see that he he's in a good place. Mm -hmm. Danny makes his way to Charlie's room, passing Fred Carling, who we will find out very shortly should be put in jail. 
Carling tells Danny Charlie has a nosebleed and then mocks him for being Dr. Sleep. So, Ben, I know you don't work in a hospice, but Mm. I feel like of the three of us, you're probably the one with the closest experiences to this kind of setting, not necessarily like helping someone die. But would you like to tell us about Charlie and what Danny does for him? Uh, Yeah, he uh, basically is a death doula which is just mm-hmm. a real thing. <laughs> like, that's that's just a real job. Really? Yeah. Uh, no, there are people who specialize in just the process of dying, wow. and they will come and sit mm-hmm. with you. And Not everybody has somebody. Yeah. So he, he comes and sits by this guy and talks with him, and the guy's like, yeah, I, I think it's my time, and I'm real scared. And Danny says, you know, I get that. I get that. But it's cool. Like, guess what? I know for a fact it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not going to be nothing. And (laughs) until whatever's next comes, I'm going to be here with you. And it is, I'm getting a little choked up talking about it. Yeah. And he just helps this guy pass. And it's... uh. Did you get the impression, because when he's like holding his hand and he's seeing, you know, uh, what you presume is like uh, his wedding night with his wife and Mm -hmm. like these moments that he is also showing, like letting him relive those Mm -hmm. moments in this. Like facilitating. He he is doing the life flashing before your eyes for him to Mm -hmm. and tells him that, you know, it's it's just going to sleep and then you'll wake up and it'll be different. Yeah. A thing I want to mention here, he sees bruises on his arm, which is not unusual for leukemia patients because they bruise very easily. But he knows, he shines that these are, well, and he sees that they are fingerprints. He knows they're from Carling. He's going to put a pin in that. So when Charlie passes... This was interesting. He so Danny thinks of this moment as his terrible privilege, first of all, which is like, oh. Mm. But he sees these slow blue pulses in the darkness when Charlie dies. And I think what he also sees is steam. Yeah, the, like there's a mist, mist coming that comes out from of him. his nose and mouth at the, the end. The gasp, the final gasp is what it's called. So Azzy, who usually takes off before the final moment, is still there and he's staring really hard at the door. Danny turns to look, expecting to see one of the nurses, but there's no one there. Although he knows that's not really true. Someone is there. And he asks, is your name Abra? And in response, he hears faint piano keys. <laughs> then that presence is gone. Now Danny's going to take care of some business. And it was so mm-hmm. satisfying that he did. Who would like to do the honors? He marches down to Carling and flips him out of his chair. And it, it points out that he he doesn't want to be like his father, but he knows he has the same rage his mm-hmm. father has. And he even notes that he's proud of himself a little that he's walking to this calmly and not with fists clenched ready to fight because he knows he could lose it and pummel this guy Mm -hmm. but he tosses him on his ass and just punks him out so hard and is like (laughs) if you if i ever find it you lay your hand on another person i don't care who you know uh, you will never be allowed in this building again It is really cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It does make me feel, though, I hate this, that Carling is going to meddle in an extremely Mm. frustrating way later on. Don't make a noise, Josh. Mm. Don't (laughs) want to know yet. (laughs) Danny goes back to his room, 
And I haven't really mentioned it because it's a lot, but much of this time that we're spending with Danny, he is still haunted by memories and phrases. And he's always thinking of the Overlook and Mama and Canny. He's also thinking of his sobriety, the slogans, the lessons he's learning. We don't have to talk about it every single time, but I just want to mention it because it's a really important part of the book and a very real and well-written part when he's thinking about his sobriety. And it's just, you know, it's something we talk about that King does really well, things like grief and addiction. So Danny's journey with addiction and sobriety, to me, it was so real that it made him real to me as an adult. And I really appreciated that. Danny is in bed that night and he senses Abra. He holds his hand out of the covers and he can feel her hand in his like 20 miles away. And she, in her bed, feels his hand. And she did see, we find out, Charlie go. And it was scary, but there was helping. And she knows that she helped too. She helped Danny just now. Last section of this episode, guys, we are going to spend some time with the True Knot, who, since we left Andy's turning, oh, and I forgot to mention, like, Rose is a total fox and taught Andy that sex wasn't bad. Good for Andy. And uh, Rose is like this. She reminds me of Resident Evil. Which is, of course, a lesson that the villains uh, (sighs) should teach. (laughs) But she, I was picturing the... The um oh what's her name from Resident Evil Village <laughs> a really tall uh, <laughs> Lady Demiscu yes yeah, yeah. Uh, Lady the Hat <laughs> Lady the Hat oh I do she hate also the... has a bitch in a hat I mean <laughs> I do hate the True Knot you guys I it, I have some real complicated feelings about the True Knot if I can get into it real quick yeah so th- this chapter starts with isn't it. Aren't RVs weird? RV culture. <laughs> RV, RV culture is, is creepy, right? Stephen King does not like RVs or something. Weird, I don't know. It is. I'm torn. I'm <laughs> yeah. torn. Because on the one hand, this reads like lower class. Aren't the middle class creepy? Uh, <laughs> okay. Which is fucking fresh coming from being written by a billionaire. Like, uh, it it is, oh, these people, they drive around in their RVs and they shop at Walmart and like McDonald's and they're (sighs) secretly evil. I I thought RVs were super expensive, though, so I just thought of them as, like, upper class. That's the other Mm. side, because he writes, but the people in the RVs, he writes as though they are lower class people, because they are classless and they are... Uh, uh, oh, they're old and fat and obviously <laughs> bad. But then on the other hand, the actual people that drive RVs are upper middle class conservative people. And do I have to say it? <laughs> no. Y- y'all know what I think. Yeah. Uh, no, it, I, I was really torn because uh, coming from someone who isn't Stephen King, a... One uh, an insanely rich person. It, from his perspective, he's kind of punching down in the in the class <laughs> in the in class wise. But from my perspective, yeah, fuck those RV people. <laughs> I I will point out. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's for sure happened to me. If you're on a road trip or something, and you do pull into one of those. McDonald's or gas stations or something mm-hmm. off the interstate and there is an RV 
when you walk inside the building, you know who the RV belongs to. Sure. Like, it's a culture. It's, yeah, like, you have that, um, the, uh, what you would dress a cartoon character in to show they're a tourist. Yes. Uh, it is, like, that kind of. See, that feeling feels extreme, because the, the, the that image I have in my head are people that are lower class, people I, who have worked their whole life and are now retired and are are traveling the country or whatever. I just picture the neighbor from Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, not Hank Hill? No. Yeah, yeah not Hank Hill. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about <laughs> the, the optics of King I, being like, these people are low class and See, you I, should be afraid of. I don't, I th- I don't it, think that it's sorry. It's a good I just took it as he, it's a clever way for the true to travel and mm. be inconspicuous. And I think King just wants to make us feel uncomfortable with this group of people. It, for me, it's the fact that all he has to point out to is, he draws enough a picture of me to see these people and to immediately say, I wouldn't engage either. Yeah. And I think that's the shield is they're so obvious that you wouldn't want mm. to engage. And you wouldn't expect or suspect right. yeah, it is of them anything. definitely kind of playing into the, uh, of course, they are, uh, you know, older white folks. They have the privilege of being invisible to uh, mm. law enforcement. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we get a reference to Jerusalem's lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, it's and a desperation. Place they visit. They, uh, they, they, yeah, they talk about uh, that the true, uh, they have billions of dollars in accounts all over the place and they own big lots of land and all mm. this stuff in a bunch of major cities. And they point out uh, Jerusalem's lot. Mm. Uh, they point out Sidewinder, which we mm-hmm. got from Misery and The Shining, of course. And they also mention uh, the town off of I-80 in Nevada, which is the setting of Desperation. Oh, Oh, which we'll get to. Yeah, coming up, (laughs) Patreon selection. We just learn more about this group of people because they're not exactly human anymore. I would describe them as vampires. I could be wrong, but at this point, they seem like vampires. They they specifically, at a certain point, are like, we're not like those vampires in those old Hammer movies, horror (laughs) movies. I'm like, but aren't you? We're just psychic (laughs) vampires. Yeah. Yeah. We finally meet Rose's second in command. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (sighs) Hold on. Now I'm like, what was even happening? I was so committed to the crow What's his name? Oh, yeah. Uh, Okay. Sam, what's his name? Okay. Sam, what's his name? Any guy who likes (laughs) everyone to call him something daddy (laughs) is just automatically gross. Daddy... (laughs) You know, Crow Daddy. Why? I'm just gonna call him Crow Papa instead. <laughs> is, that is, that, is that a better choice? It doesn't feel as gross in my mouth, and that's all I know. Fair enough. Uh, no one's like, well, no, I'm not even gonna. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so tell that to Biggie I, Smalls. I almost. Ju- <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh my, he's totally fucked me up. Okay. <laughs> so. Crow Papa has come with some bad news, something that doesn't often and shouldn't happen to members of the True Knot. Tommy the Truck. Tommy the Truck, Rosetta. Mm-hmm. 
Because he likes Tommy trucks. the tank engine had a heart attack or something, and he also had a cold. And the family is malnourished. And the last time they ate, it was a 19-year-old, which was a little too old for them. Oh. And it makes me think about Andy, who was abused as a child. Like how this is where I turned on her. Mm. Just how can she tolerate killing children? Because that's their primary source of food. So Crow Pops tells Rose that it's time to open a canister. And this is kind of a problem, although she's not entirely honest with him about what's going on. Yeah, she he says that we need to have a canister to, you know, get everybody's strength back up. And she says something about how many do you think there are? And he says 12, something like that. And he thinks she knows that he thinks he's intentionally guessing low. And in reality, there are three. three. Yeah. That's right. This is so silly. I'm sorry. The already having the villain of this book, like I said, having a villain at all when the villain mm-hmm. of the first book is human nature, basically. Yeah. But having literally a group of supervillains, basically, is silly. Having them literally have a group of, like, fucking video game logic canisters of (laughs) boy soul is so silly. It takes me out of it. It did. This did make me think more and more of the shop and the books that the shop is a part of the style of those, yeah. the way they're written, the way they make me feel. This feels more like a callback to kind of that era of King writing. I, I don't know. It, it takes, it makes me pulls you out care a little bit. less where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't <laughs> care for it a whole lot. <laughs> and we don't have to go into this, but this is where we find out that they feed on not just people who have special powers, but on disaster and death. Rose tells Crow that it's time for Andy to do her thing. So she pays a visit to the campground owners and she puts them to sleep, telling the husband to dream about chasing young girls because she thinks every man is a pedophile and the wife to dream that he died and left her a large insurance policy (laughs) and that they won't wake up until late, late, late that night. And they won't remember this visit. And I, I mentioned that Andy thinks every guy is a pedophile because he does have a dream about a young girl, but does he have that dream because she told him to? Yeah. Would he, does he even like young girls? I guess that was my. No, I think by the way he reacts the next morning about his dream when they talk about mm-hmm. it, it seems like he's very disturbed. Well, I just thought he was hiding it from his wife. So I was kind of like, did she make him a pedophile just now? <laughs> like, she sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, anyway, so at 9 p.m., the true gather in the campgrounds and Rose brings one of the last three canisters. Let's talk about what happens with this canister soul orgy yep yeah they (laughs) they all they all drink this tortured boy's soul Mm, and they want to bang and then the end and then they bang so it's july now and hey guys the true knot are in our state yay welcome to not far away (laughs) yeah they get a ping only rose barry and flick can feel people with powers And we find out that people with a lot of steam are practically immune to suggestions. So the true generally have to take them by force. And sometimes they have to kill the people around them to do it, which is bad because that draws attention to them, of course. And they're trying to avoid that at all costs. But they are so desperate right now, even if only Rose knows how desperate they are. So young 
Bradley Trevor is about to die horrifically. Which one of you would like to take us through Bradley's abduction? Yes. This is rough. I did not enjoy no, this part. No. Wait till the movie. Uh, <sighs> because this kid, he's at baseball practice and suddenly it, it feels very like almost like he's not totally there. Um, like he's not completely in control of his own actions. Scratching and at a red spot, which I don't know if that means anything. Me neither. It's it mentioned is twice. <laughs> very prominently mentioned yeah. that he keeps like focusing on the spot in his arm and he wanders home through a cornfield. And when he comes out on the other side, there's an RV waiting for him. And he says, hey, I'm a friend. Get in. It's Barry. And yeah, Barry takes him. And the next we see... He is tied up with duct tape in the middle of a field, and Rose the Hat says, sorry, um, I'm not going to hurt you much, Mm. and then immediately tortures him for a very, very long time. Because pain enriches the steam, because he's begging for his life, he's begging not to be hurt, and they, she thinks of him as a lobster, basically. Yep. I, I don't know why this, of all of the really horrific violence and uh, things that we have read over the years, I, I don't know why this scene made me feel gross. I can tell you why. It's it's this section, how, how this is put together, because she tells Bradley that she'll hurt him as little as possible. And then the next sentence following that is, the boy lasted a long time, screamed until his vocal cords ruptured, and then he finally whispers to please kill him. And Rose smiles and says, soon, but it wasn't. But it wasn't. And it's so upsetting. And also, Rose has like this weird moment of hesitation, which I don't know if that means something, but we don't get anything out of that right now. Um, Bradley finally starts to turn to steam. They take it and they bury him in this abandoned field by this plant and they move on. And that's where we move on. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode where we will be reading through chapter 13. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you, the world is just a hospice with fresh air. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to Dr. Sleep Part 1. We hope you enjoyed it. We would love to know what you think of this book so far. Let us know on our Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. And if you want more ways to keep up to date with us and chat, we have you covered on our Patreon where you get access to early episodes and bonus content not on our regular feed. We've covered Joe Hill short stories. We've done RPGs with guests. We are currently in the middle of our first season of a Colorado Kid-inspired audio drama, and we will be bringing you new content every month. You can also connect with us on our Discord, which I don't know a lot about, so you don't have to either. We can figure it out together. Search Dairy Public Radio on both of those platforms. And don't forget to check out our Etsy store. We have some really cool stuff on there. Dairy merch, Stephen King merch. And if you don't see something you want, message us and we will probably make it for you. In fact, we will be launching a new logo for our products soon. A request by listener. And finally, you can always email us your thoughts at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And when I say that... 
I really mean it. You guys bring us so much joy. Thank you. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.